This is your host, Ed Pullen, on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Spring migration. That brings a smile to birders' faces in much of North America. We think of shorebirds. We think of songbirds that go south to the uh, Latin America to winter and come rushing back to breed uh, in the north for their breeding season. Lots of birds migrate, but around here in Pierce County, uh, Washington State, where I live, shorebird migration is really a challenge. We just do not have a lot of shorebirds coming through this area. Shorebirds, most of them, tend to come up the coast uh, and stay you know, closer to the Pacific than getting in on the Puget Sound. Some of them certainly come through here. But near where I live in Pierce County, and during this COVID-19 uh, stay home, stay safe uh, recommendation, we have been, been tr- I have been trying to stay closer to home, not traveling a whole lot to go birding. Uh, so finding some mud around here is not easy. We just don't have a lot of shorebird stopover places. First of all, we're not uh, a big stopover place. We have a great place in Washington, Bowram Basin, uh, Grays Harbor area, which has two terrific areas where the tide pushes the birds that are staging there up into uh, small areas of remaining mud at high tide, Bottle Beach and Bowerman Basin uh, in Hoquiam, where it's really fun to watch the birds congregate. Uh, They stop over for a week or two, usually the end of April and early May, in pretty big numbers. Western sandpipers, dunlin, short-billed dowichers, uh, and red knots are the the good numbers of birds, but you can get really almost anything in through there at that time of year. But uh, that's not here yet. That's another week away. And you have to decide if I'm going to travel down there. It's certainly not just a no-brainer to go do this year. So we've been looking for mud here in Pierce County, and there aren't a lot of spots. Each year, it seems like it varies. You know, water levels in this muddy field might be just right or might not be. You have to kind of look around. Well, Will Brooks found a really cool muddy field in Fife, Washington this year. Uh, Will is a, was a guest on a previous podcast, uh, and is a really good young birder. He's in his senior year at UPS. Bob Police doing that virtually now, uh, unfortunately, but uh, so f- maybe finding a little more time to bird than he might the spring of his senior year normally. Uh, but I uh, found a really good muddy field that so far has yielded solitary sandpipers, least sandpipers, uh, and uh, a few other things, greater yellow legs. Uh, but uh, it's just fun to have some mud where we can see some shorebirds. Uh, so that's been good. Uh, the songbird migration here is just starting to pick up. Our early returning songbirds have returned, common yellow throats, uh, and because uh, yellow rump warblers over winter, our savannah sparrows are back, uh, and vesper sparrows we got out at Fort Lewis recently. The bluebirds came back a long time ago. So spring migration is just picking up, but it'll come in in good numbers of different species in about a week or 10 days. Usually the very end of April, first week of May, is when a lot of different birds show up. Uh, So I'm excited about spring migration uh, and getting out and finding some new birds for the year here in Paris County. My guest today, though, uh, has more to do with seabirds than shorebirds or passerines. Seabirds are birds that spend a lot of their time offshore, and many of them breed on islands. Islands that historically have not had rodents or house cats uh, are uh, safe places from predators uh, and 
over the generations, uh, millennia probably, uh, seabirds learn to nest on these rocky islands off the coast where it's very safe to, to nest. Well, that became less safe as people started raiding those nests for eggs especially, but also meat. Uh, these are, quote, sitting duck type birds on their breeding grounds. They're, you know, sitting on a nest and a huge congregation of numbers. And it was really easy for people to take a boat out to these islands, get on the islands and just collect eggs. Uh, and uh, so in the late 1800s, even the early 1900s, tremendous numbers of eggs were harvested and birds were killed uh, by humans uh, and really depleting and, and really abolish, you know, getting rid of it and making extinct some of these species. The Atlantic puffin uh, is a bird in the, that breeds in the northeastern United States, North America, off Canada and the U.S., uh, mostly Canada and uh, is a bird that was probably present in pretty big numbers, and its southern range extended just barely to Maine, the northernmost east coast state in the United States. Well, Eastern Egg Island is a little island only about six or seven miles offshore near, near uh, uh, the central Maine coast, and uh, it historically had breeding Atlantic puffins. Well, uh, scientists, especially uh, Dr. Stephen Kress, uh, on the East Coast in around the early 1970s came up with the idea of trying to reintroduce Atlantic puffins to the islands off the coast of Maine and having an accessible island with a historical breeding grounds for Atlantic puffins made Eastern Egg Island an ideal place to try. It's pretty easy to get to. You could make it happen without tremendous effort. So Dr. Kress, uh, along with others, uh, gathered chicks uh, from Canadian islands where they're breeding puffins and introduced them to Eastern Egg Rock starting in about 1973. Well, it took a few years, but eventually uh, breeding, breeding seabirds started breeding on Eastern Egg Island, and they were very successful uh, with that and other islands off the coast of Maine. And so that has been a really cool success story. And uh, Dr. Kress uh, basically invented these techniques for reintroducing seabirds, taking chicks. So if the chicks were uh, reared on these islands, they would come back to the island where they were from, where they uh, had their childhood, so to speak, to breed rather than go back to the islands where they were gathered from the first place as little tiny chicks. Uh, so that, along with using decoys and call notes for turns to bring turns into these islands, uh, were techniques discussed, well, really invented by Dr. Kress and others. And uh, so they really made huge uh, contributions to science in terms of learning how to uh, bring back populations of seabirds to islands. Seabirds face tremendous challenges. I mentioned humans eating them and, and eating their eggs uh, as a big cause, but they also face challenges from house cats. Cats have been introduced onto some of these islands, and cats are tremendously efficient predators for baby chicks uh, in these nests. Uh, on one of my previous episodes, on number 44 with Jerry and Clarice Clark, they talk about work in the Hawaiian Islands, where they worked with uh, other people there volunteering to try to help reintroduce uh, seabirds, uh, uh, save seabirds, help, uh, help them survive the breeding process, uh, in large part by keeping them away from house cats. Uh, in another episode, I talk with uh, Tim Larson. Tim uh, is from the uh, Central California coast, Northern California coast, near the Farallone Islands, uh, where rodents, 
have become a tremendous problem on the Farallon Islands. Rodents came on ships originally, and they, they don't belong on these islands, they're not native to them, but when humans came to the islands, rats and house mice from their ships got off on the islands, and without a lot of predators, became extremely, extremely successful, and these house mice in the Farallon Islands just eat shorebirds alive while they're on the nest. It's just an ugly, gruesome, incredible sight. I mean, episode 26, I talk with Tim about that and learn about that. So between depleted food sources in the oceans uh, from overfishing and other causes, from uh, rodents and cats to humans gathering eggs, seabirds have faced tremendous challenges over the years. Well, we are in luck today. I have as my guest Pete Salmonson. Puffin Pete, as he's affectionately known, is one of the premier educators on the status and situation of seabirds off the coast of Maine. There's been a huge successful reintroduction project. He's worked intimately with the scientists involved with that and has worked primarily toward the education both of school children, of ecotourists, and others to the status of the reintroduction of seabirds to the coast of Maine. He's well, in, well informed about the science issues, but is also informed about the education and social issues and has been a fascinating guest. I think you'll really enjoy hearing from Puff and Pete on the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 57. Pete, thanks for joining the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being a guest today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's fun. I heard about you from Susie, Susie uh, Gilbert, who was my guest last week. Uh, she, uh, How do you know Susie? She's a warrior, that woman boy. She is. She is uh, uh, a conservation hero in my eyes. We're, we're basically neighbors in the same town here in the Hudson Valley in Cold Spring. And I met her probably 20 years ago. And uh, I taught her kids and uh, work, saw her aviary and her incredible work with birds. She's um, the real McCoy. Yeah, it sounds like it. She was just a blast to have on. And she can write. Oh, my goodness. I read her novel just last weekend and had so much fun. It was really good. Unflappable, she just wrote. <laughs> She's kind of unflappable herself, I think. Uh, well, don't get her into a political argument or you'll find out she flaps a lot. <laughs> I bet. I bet. So, Pete, you have been involved. Involved is an understatement. You have been actively and avidly involved in uh, seabird restoration on the Northeast. Uh, tell me your story. How, to, how did you get going on that? And how'd that come about? Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, in 1980, in June, I was uh, privileged to join the faculty of the Hog Island Audubon Camp, which was adult sessions, two-week adult sessions. Uh, there are about seven or eight instructors and about 55 people came every two weeks. And it was quite something. And my first day there, I was escorted to our little cabin. And as I was walking in, I heard this static and voices coming from a little room. And that was uh, someone who has become a good friend of mine, Dr. Steve Kress, talking over a little CB radio to his research biologists about seven miles out into Muscungus Bay who were living on the seven-acre rock with hopes of restoring puffins and terns. And I soon 
met Steve and uh, learned about his project and and we worked together on Hog Island for many years. And then about 1990, I started working for him as a boat narrator. Very cool. Uh, so you've been involved, especially in the educational parts of that project, it sounds like. Yes. And even though Steve is a, a biologist and has a degree in zoology, he also has a degree in environmental education. And he's um, one of the rare kind of conservationist who's got one foot in hard science and one foot as a dedicated educator and a strong belief in sharing conservation stories and conservation needs with the general public. So it was a really good relationship for both of us. It sounds like, well, this Puffin, they call it Project Puffin, a Puffin project, the Seabird Restoration Project's uh, you know, street name, uh, has been insanely successful i mean the i don't know exactly what the status of atlantic puffins were before this or the status in maine but there were hardly any if any were there uh good point ed uh puffins were never that common in maine because it's the southern edge of their range okay and records suggest that there were perhaps six or seven puffin nesting islands uh, in Maine, but by 1900, after centuries of hunting and exploitation, there was only two puffins left on one island, and the only reason they survived was because the lighthouse keeper on Matinicus Rock, way out, 22 miles oh, out yeah. to sea, protected the last nesting seabirds and puffins on that little island from poachers. Oh, my goodness. So, so they had their, their own guardian. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that that those lighthouse keepers were America's first wildlife wardens, and that goes back to about 1901. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, with continued uh, guarding of that colony, eventually the puffins were able to come back on their own very, very, very slowly, but they never were able to come back to any of the other former nesting islands, including Eastern Egg Rock, which was the one furthest down the coast and actually the one most accessible to the mainland, only about five miles offshore. Right. Uh, I've, I've visited that island. I've uh, taken the, uh, is it New Halem or New? New, New Harbor. New Harbor. Out of New Harbor, right. there's a boat out of New Harbor that uh, circles the island, circles Eastern Egg Island and then goes out to... Uh, to Monhegan Island, to the artist colony there. And I've, I've done that a couple of times. It's really fun. Uh, I, I got my life Northern Gannet on that trip. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, it was, it was roosting on the water and it, we're dry, we're riding out on the boat and I'm, it's a long time ago. I'm a sort of a beginning birder and there's this big, weird looking bird sitting on the water. It, it sort of looks like it's got this long tail and it's almost all white. And I go, what the heck is that? And then it flies and it was obvious what it was, but it was, it was a fun experience. It's a huge bird. Huge. Yeah. That's, I bet a lot of other people got their life gannets on that trip too. I bet yeah. they did. Along, along with roseate terns and puffins. Yeah. yeah. And arctic terns. Other, other cool stuff. Yeah. 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 Yep. Very nice. Very nice. So uh, Eastern Egg Rock has been a big success story, too. There are, I don't know how many, but quite a lot of puffins there now. 
Yeah, uh, it took eight years of transplanting puffin chicks from Newfoundland uh, to Eastern Egg Rock until puffins started breeding. And in 1981, uh, and of course, it's a quite a process to describe of how that actually succeeded. But in 1981, uh, five pairs nested for the first time in about 100 years. And then the number stayed very low for a couple of decades. And now we're up to about 180 pairs on this little island. So the numbers are, are really substantial and healthy. Much, much healthier now, too. And, and so you probably have a reasonable biologic genetic diversity, too, because they brought a bunch of different chicks down. So it's not like all started from two or three birds. So that's good. And also the Matinicus rock colony was maybe 15, 20 miles by sea. And it turns out that puffins visit other colonies and there's interbreeding from those colonies. Okay, so that was, that was great. That helps, too. Yeah, that helps too. Good. So, what you said you uh, led uh, a, a whole bunch. I don't remember the number you said, but a whole bunch of <laughs> uh, tri tri uh, boat trips. What was that like? Well, or what is that was... like? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it this way: you don't want to have that job if you get seasick. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be for uh, me. No. Um, I figure over the years, I started in 1990, my last year was 2018. I figure I led uh, about 1,700 puffin and wildlife cruises for over 100,000 people. And I probably trained about 25 environmental education interns. So, you know, I mean, I don't, it sounds cliche, but it was just a wonderful life experience. I got to meet so many find people, uh, young and old. And I got to see a lot of things out on the water by making all those trips. Uh, you know, you and these are not pelagic trips. They're relatively inshore, but I still saw things like fin whales, minke whales breaching, uh, ocean sunfish, basking sharks, uh, a variety of uh, cool seabirds like uh, – Manx Shearwater and Greater Shearwater and uh, Jaegers, uh, Wilson Storm Petrels. So, you know, every the incredible thing, I think, is that every day you go out on the water in the ocean, you never know what you're going to see or run into. You never, uh, you can't predict the sea, the seas, the visibility, the fog. And uh, it's kind of, I used to tell people on the boat, imagine that we're going on like a giant treasure hunt. And it's really up to you to use your eyes and your ears to see what's out here. Cause you know, the guides can only do so much. So really spend some time out there looking. And um, I think for most people, hopefully it did turn out to be a treasure hunt. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. I, I get out on at least two or three pelagic trips a year here in the West coast. We have, we have Westport seabirds, which is, unbelievably is the longest running regularly scheduled data collecting pelagic company or trip in the world for 40 wow. plus years that 40 plus years they've done the same wow. basic uh, same basic trip many times a year they do counts every 30 minutes they do a count point count you know uh counts of birds that they see and they've kept that data it's a fabulous database so they've really been super citizens super uh 
you know, science oriented doing that besides they're just wonderful trip leaders and we have a lot of birds. So it's a great, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I've had a couple of guests on from Westport Seabirds. uh, And uh, yeah, it's been. Where do they sail out of? Westport. (laughs) Westport, Westport, Oregon? No, Westport, Washington. It's great. Oh, Westport. Okay. Yeah. I'm from Tacoma. And, and okay. uh, Westport Seabirds is our Washington State uh, pelagic uh, uh, company, and they, you know, they do wonderful. This is going to be kind of a, a, you know, like with all sorts of things, uh, they haven't had a trip this year, so it's uh, yeah. really disappointing for them, obviously. But um, yeah, especially because they had the what is it, the giant storm petrel? I think a, a northern giant storm petrel or some no northern what was it, a northern giant petrel. Anyway, some Antarctic yeah. bird showed up uh, off the coast of uh, Washington this winter, and they wow. were dying to get out there <laughs> to go yeah. see it, and they, and they haven't been able to take a trip. So, uh, uh, bummer. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, they were hoping to get it, but anyway, uh, yeah. Pelagic trips are like that. You never know what you're going to find. You know what you have chances of finding, and you never know that something you don't even dream of could show up. So, it's yeah, fun. yeah, it's very exciting. What else can I uh, share with you about the Puffin well, Project? Well, I, you know what what was your role? You, uh, I know you worked on worked out of Hog Island for some of this time. I, I'm not sure I understand the relationship between the Audubon Camp and Hog Island and the and the uh, the Puffin Project and how do, how does that all relate? I'm not. It's a little confusing to me when I try to look it up online. That's a perfect question. So. The Audubon camp on Hog Island started way back in 1936. And uh, one of the instructors hired in 1969 was young Steve Kress, who was only in his early 20s. He had uh, worked as an ornithologist for a couple of years. And he joined about six or seven other different staff members. And in... uh, the early 1970s, Steve came up with the idea of uh, attempting uh, seabird translocation or seabird restoration because he knew uh, from talking to people and reading that Eastern Egg Rock, which is only a half an hour steam from Hog Island in Muscungus Bay, that puffins had lived out there successfully until the 1880s when they were hunted off. So he said, well, if people remove the birds, maybe we can bring them back. And after studying uh, and talking to a lot of ornithologists, they started transplanting puffin chicks in 1973. And this was done while Steve was an instructor on Hog Island. And he stayed as a regular instructor until 1986. In his last couple of years, he actually was the director. So the Puffin Project essentially was running outside, uh, excuse me, under the auspices and the umbrella and the location of Hog Island, which is only a quarter mile offshore, uh, but it's a world away from uh, the mainland. So um, eventually Steve raised enough funds to uh, kind of start the Puffin Project or the Seabird Restoration Program because it was growing. They started uh, working on six other islands on the coast of Maine, restoring 
three species of terns, actually four species of terns, uh, razorbills, and it started growing and growing and growing and became its own entity. And it is separate from Hog Island. Uh, They have their own budget, but they kind of uh, closely coordinate things. Uh, Steve was, until he retired about a year and a half ago, he was the, the director of the Seabird Restoration Program and the Hog Island Audubon Camp. So they go hand in hand to pretty much, Ed. Okay. And so your work, uh, the, the trips that you took, that you led, didn't take, uh, were out of uh, uh, New Harbor and also out of, you said, uh, Booth Bay? or Booth Bay Harbor, which is quite a tourist town. Yes, I grew up in Maine, so I'm a, I'm a maniac, and uh, oh, cool. remember each summer my uh, grandma had a place in, in a, a Rockport. Uh, yeah, Rock, Rockport. Yeah, and so I spent a little time on the coast as a kid, and have a general feel for that area. So it's it's awesome. a wonderful, wonderful place. Now, so I generally get the relationship between uh, the Seabird Restoration Project and Hog Island. Now you worked worked for you know a whole bunch of summers uh leading leading trips and doing education you were in were you centered out of hog island or were you yes yes uh well since hog island is only uh a five minute row to the mainland where we had our houses uh we were you know the seabird restoration program was basically based on the mainland and then we had the camp, and it was pretty much this very, I don't know how to explain it, but it was like hand in hand. And uh, if Steve wasn't doing, or I wasn't doing a boat trip or a lecture, we'd be on the island teaching, um, uh, leading a field trip. Um, it, it's just a wonderful relationship. And of course, uh, as we're, as running a nonprofit, Imagine having uh, 40, 50 adults every week who could become donors. Sure. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Had a, you had a, and they're, you know, people who at least have the, uh, the financial wherewithal to go to an adult camp. So it's not like they're uh, living hand to mouth. So that's a great, great uh, potential donor base right there. Uh, so, uh, Pete, you must have been a birder before all this started. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, <laughs> How did you get Actually not. Doing? No. I, w- I was not a birder. Uh, I grew up in suburban Long Island, New York. I was always interested in the outdoors, and I was a scout for many years. And I had these crazy ideas. I wanted to be a forest ranger, even though I had no idea what that was all about. And um, I was just drawn to nature and In 1975, I went to Goddard College up in the Green Mountains of Vermont for a a very progressive program called Social Ecology. And it was sort of half sociology, anthropology, political science, and half natural history and field biology. And I took some field courses up there, and it was like, wow, what is that bird that's singing, you know, old Sam Peabody, Peabody. And right around the dorms were a whole mess of white-throated sparrows singing. And 
it fascinated me. And of course, one thing led to another. But it really wasn't until I was probably around 30 that uh, I started birding. <laughs> I, start, I started about the same age as you. So <clears throat> very, cool. Great mind, very cool. Great minds think alike. Yeah, different influences, but uh, still very good. Uh, so, so you've been uh, involved in the in the uh, Seabird Project. Now, you also involved in the Hudson Highlands Land Trust. I I looked you up on LinkedIn, so I know this. Uh, and uh, so, the, tell me about the Hudson Highland Land Trust. I I know about sure. land trusts around here. I have a general feel for what they are. How what does that land trust do? Well. Where I live is about 50 miles or so north of New York City in the beautiful and very historic Hudson River Valley. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of development pressure uh, because we're close, so close to the metropolitan area. Sure. But uh, through, you know, the last uh, 80, 90, 100 years of people stepping up to the plate, there's a lot of preserved land here, such as Bear Mountain State Park and Harriman State Park and Fonstock State Park, etc. But there's still a lot of private land. And the Hudson Highlands Land Trust was organized about 25, 30 years ago to keep the highlands as green and undeveloped as possible. And as you said, there are many land trusts these days, and I think we owe them all a tremendous debt of gratitude and the particular one that you mentioned, Hudson Highlands, for a number of years was different than other land trusts because they had an entire educational wing that they funded. And what I did, along with a bunch of other folks, was go visit schools and teach the kids about environmental education, birds, nature, adaptations, food webs. And we did as much outdoor uh, experiences as we could. And sometimes we did indoor programs. And that continued for maybe eight or nine years until the land trust uh, changed directors. And then another group called the Beacon Institute for Rivers and Estuaries took over the education program. And that's for whom I work now as part-time educator. But as as your listeners know, during this time in April, it's the pandemic. So uh, sadly, there's not much going on right now. Yeah, I, I I didn't have any trouble scheduling you, but your schedule and my schedule are largely <laughs> <friends> right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, if there's if there's an upside to anything, huh? Boy, it is it is quite a different time. I have to say, uh, I've been I've been getting out a little bit. I went out birding this morning. I'm I'm blessed enough to live in a place with lots of places you can go birding where there are no people. <laughs> uh, so wow. I went out to I went to Joint Base Lewis McCord, our big military base here. And if you get yeah. uh, if you go on and get uh, you know basically permission to go on on post, uh, they have different areas that are open to recreational use on different days and if you just stick to the right areas on the right days you can go there and it was a i had a great morning it was i had got two first of year birds got my northern bob white there's a little tiny remnant oh. population of introduced bob white that are listable on fort lewis and great for my first northern ruffling swallow of the season this morning oh so terrific it was nice and and I heard a warbler I didn't identify, which is always exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've, 
I've got a recording. I've got a little work to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's that time of the year. It's very exciting. Very exciting. It is. It is. Uh, Ed, there were two great. two two other things I wanted to briefly mention about oh, the Puppin Project, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. Okay. One is the I think it's probably agreed among those of us who work for the project that the greatest effect is to influence scientists and managers around the world who are working with globally threatened and endangered seabirds uh, that that techniques such as translocation of chicks or in the case of turns using sound recordings and decoys, which is now referred to as social attraction, mm -hmm. that these techniques uh, which were basically invented uh, out of nothing um, in the 70s on the main coast are now being used in dozens of countries with many dozens of uh, birds that are in danger. And that, I think, is the greatest uh, contribution that Steve Kress and the Seabird Restoration have made to global conservation efforts. Birds like the dark rub petrel in the Galapagos, uh, the crested tern, the Chinese crested tern in China, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so if anybody's interested in finding more about this, they should go to our website, which is projectpuffin.org. I'll make sure I leave a link to that in the podcast notes and on the blog post that I put up associated with this. So thanks for that. Good. Yeah, I, read, uh, I actually read an article when I was you know, doing my little quick research for this episode. I found a New York Times article that uh, talked with Steve and, uh, and a bunch of other South American and Asian and other uh, people that he was apparently had on site teaching them how to do this sort of thing. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the second thing I wanted to mention was uh, we certainly did not forget school kids. And the fact that puffins are cute, that is the key, I think, to the popularity, uh, large popularity of this project and to Steve's work. Uh, I, I always used to joke around. I said, if we were restoring double-crested cormorants, nobody would come out here. Yeah. You know, puffins are charismatic. They're cute. They're very photogenic, as you know. And here we were uh, in the 90s uh, working in Maine. And we said, hey, you know, there's a lot of school kids right in this very state who do not have any uh, uh, knowledge or awareness of the fact that here is a world-class conservation program taking place right in their backyard there's only a million and a half people in the state of Maine, as you know. And at that point in the late 90s, uh, I started a school uh, outreach program, which we called Seabird Adventures. And I'm very happy and proud to say that that school program is still going on uh, about 23 years after it started. And we have taught thousands of kids in over 50 Maine schools about conservation, and uh, we find it's just uh, a heartwarming and inspiring and fun way to uh, share the story with 
with kids. Very, very neat. Yeah. Uh, youth education is so critical. I mean, if we can just get a, a tiny subset of those people to be activists and heroes for the causes, you know, then you've, your, your, your work is paid off, uh, in multiples. So that's, that's yes. terrific. Pete, you've yes. written a couple you've written a couple of children's books, haven't you? I'm very happy to say yes. <laughs> the first one, uh, which was published in 1997 and is still in print today, which is very unusual for a kid's book, uh, was written with Steve, uh, and we called it Project Puffin, how we brought puffins back to Egg Rock. And we did something a little different since I had heard Steve Crest talk so much about the project and I knew how the restoration worked. And I'd been to egg rock, of course, many times the book is called by Steve Crest as told to Pete Salmonson. So I wrote the book as if I was Steve talking to a group of fourth or fifth graders sitting in my living room and we illustrated it with photographs that had been taken by a variety of people over the years. Mm -hmm. And we, we also wrote a curriculum guide with it called Giving Back to the Earth. Uh, and then in 2003, Steve and I collaborated on another Audubon licensed children's book called Saving Birds, Heroes Around the World. And that took a look at six international projects working with a variety of birds like cranes in China or quetzals in Mexico, etc. And uh, again, it was illustrated with photos and it was meant to really uh, inspire kids to think about, hey, they're doing this. Maybe I can do this when I get a little older. Sure. That's also targeted at fourth to fifth graders? So what age range would yeah, you have that book yeah, targeted at? Uh-huh. Yeah. I'd say yeah. about that age. Late elementary, Probably. late elementary, sort of middle yep. to late elementary yep. age. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, I will, uh, I will make sure I put links to those. You can probably buy those. Is the best way to buy those at the Audubon store or at the, on Amazon? Or how, how, do, how would I buy one of those books if I wanted to? Uh, you could go online and uh, to any used book seller like Alibris Books or ABE Books. You could go to Amazon, although, you know, they're kind of yeah. a behemoth uh, yeah. and uh, undoubtedly will find copies. Okay. So those are, you said the first one is still in print. The second one is not. The second one went out of print about two years ago, but there are copies. I'm sure and they're, paperback, they're paperbacks, Ed, so they're pretty cheap. Yeah. Good. Well, that's good to know. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so you you said you told me that you're retired. Uh, what what do you see going forward? You're going to still uh, do some. You have a part time job. It sounds like with your more local land trust. Uh, wh what do you see going forward for you in terms of both birding and conservation and those types of things? Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, I'm not really retired. I retired from National Audubon uh, after. 38 or 39 years of seasonal part-time and full-time work. And uh, I, I'm now working for, or should be working for four different groups, um, including the Beacon Institute, the Fresh Air Fund, some of the local schools doing after-school programs. So uh, 
I'm doing as much environmental education as I could find. And uh, I'm sitting on about five different boards of groups in the Hudson Valley uh, related to conservation. So uh, I got plenty of get up and go. And I figured after 1,700 puffin cruises, I needed some new challenges. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Good for you. Yeah, I, thank I you. Know the, I know the Hudson Valley a little bit. Uh, I uh, was stationed at West Point for four years. Uh, that's oh, where actually, yes. Actually, where I became a birder while I was at West became uh, started down the road of being a birder while I was at West Point. My wife was a birder, and uh, she introduced me to that on a trip to the Everglades. And I came back and just fell in love with it. Uh, round pond and bull pond on on uh, on uh on West Point, and she had a, a place in, in New York, in Manhattan, so Bird Central Park and Jamaica Bay and uh, yeah, jo Jones Beach and all of those types of places. Great so, places. Uh, I, I remember a story. When I was at West Point, we rented a canoe, and I knew nothing about uh, nothing about uh, birding. And I remember we rented a canoe and paddled across the Hudson River to the right across from West Point. There's this wonderful wetlands, and we could see it in our binos. It looked like a great place to go, but you drive around and you couldn't really get to it. it says we'll rent a canoe. We paddled a canoe across, and and uh, what a wonderful experience that was. Marsh wrens, you know, in those days, long-billed marsh wrens in those days. Yeah. Uh, were, uh, you know, you in the, saw the little nest right at eye level when you paddled through the rush. It was really pretty cool. <laughs> well, uh, guess what? I worked at that marsh for seven years. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, it's actually called Constitution Marsh. That's exactly uh, what it's called. I've forgotten that name. Very good. Yeah, it's an Audubon property. It's a wonderful place for birding. When I look at my eBird life list, I see long-billed marsh wren or marsh wren now and constitution marsh, probably some other birds too. I don't know because in those days, life was for cheap, easy to come by. <laughs> so were canoe rentals. Uh, yes, they probably were, especially <laughs> when you're in the army. And the, the, the military from the out outdoors club or whatever they have at the at the military post there i, yeah. I tell people that being stationed at what I, I wasn't a student at west point i want to make that perfectly clear i was a doctor at west point a family doctor there and uh i tell people it was the best of all worlds it was a a perfect blend between a division one university a top-notch military reservation and a national park all blended into one it was just a yeah wonder, wonderful place to yeah. One year, I, one year I drove over Storm King Mountain for a year to work at Stewart Army Subpost there. And, oh, uh, yes. Uh, so driving over Storm King in the winter was quite an experience. Was, yep, yep. Yeah. Well, I live about, as the crow flies, probably about eight miles from West Point. So oh, okay. Uh, we're in the same neighborhood. Yeah, that's cool. Great. It's been a long, long time since I've been there, but it was a wonderful wonderful part of my life. I really enjoyed that. That Hudson Valley is just such a wonderful spot. It's it's like a whole different world than New York City. I mean, it just doesn't even feel urban at all, really. Well, that's why we're here. <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. Yeah. Um, so if, if listeners want to reach out to you, Pete, how would they get a hold of you? What would be the best way for someone to, to reach out? Well, to, thank to, you. Uh, I, I would well. I would say one thing, two things. One is, I have a blog site oh. that is puffinpeat.net. Just puffinpeat.net. Great. I'll put a link to that too. Perfect. 
Okay. And I've written five essays so far. I just started it in, in January, and it's mostly uh, social ecology, environmental ed, nature observations. I wrote one about Dr. Barry Commoner and his four laws of ecology and how they applied to the coronavirus. So, uh, and my email is just puffpete, P-U-F-F-P-E-T-E at gmail.com. Okay. So people know how to get a hold of you. That's terrific. Pete, thank you so Great. much for being my guest today. I want to give one last chance for you to give a shout out to any of the causes or other things you want to make sure people hear about. I don't want to cut you off. I want to make sure you have lots of opportunities to, to tell what you're doing. Uh, are there any other things you want to make sure people hear about? Well, I think that's very generous of you to ask. Uh, I think the most important thing is to make sure that we share our love of nature and our sense of wonder with other people, whether it's kids or adults. And now with the pandemic, there are so many people looking to get outside. And I think that this is a perfect opportunity to um, do whatever you can at a safe distance uh, and take people out to your favorite birding spots or on a hike or a wildflower walk or, you know, just, I, I think that's probably what is going to help save this society as, as Pete Seeger would say, you know, let, let's sing and let's enjoy nature and let's share. So that's, that's really my message, I guess. Good life advice. Good life advice. <laughs> Thank you for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. And uh, you stay safe and uh, have a good spring. Take care. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks, Dr. Ed. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast episode number 57 with Puff and Pete, Pete Salmonson. I had a really fun time talking with him. I hope you enjoyed the episode also. I'll be sure to leave uh, links in the podcast notes to some of the things we talked about and put up a blog post on birdbanner.com for additional information about the Puffin Project and other topics that we talked about. Uh, thanks for joining me. I hope you enjoyed. Good birding. Good day. <laughs>